you are joining us for the first time, thanks for worshiping with us. We are finishing up a very short series on gifts and service, and part of the reason as a reminder that we're doing this is because in the beginning of our ministry year, we felt God was calling us to be greater stewards of the grace that Jesus has given us in the way that we serve and use our unique contributions and abilities to build up the church. And so we're doing a short series to clarify what are gifts, how do you use them, what's the purpose of this, how does it encourage others and build up the church. And we're concluding this series by looking at 1 Peter 4, 7-11. through 11. So if you're able, I want to ask you to please stand for the reading of God's Word. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7-11. to 11. Verse 7 says this. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks, oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory, belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And this is God's word. You can take your seats. Well, there's this author in 1957. His name is Naville Shute. He wrote a book, a fiction book called On the Beach, in which It was a story talking about the end times of uh, a world that would end in catastrophic nuclear war that began by accidental um, fruition. In one part of the novel, this is what he says about sort of the end times of how people would respond if the world is coming to an end. And it says this, In the northern hemisphere, the end had come suddenly and disastrously. In the southern hemisphere... The end would come slowly as radiation drifted in the wind. There would be time to prepare, time to seek solace in religion, in alcohol, frenzied promiscuity, or in the thing you always wanted to do, to drive a fast, expensive car, to buy some splendid object with one's savings, or to consume the best bottles of wine from the cellar of one's club. That's how he describes what the culture and people would do, how they would think and live, in light of the end times. It's a haunting and depressing outlook on the end times, but what Peter gives us is a different perspective of how you and I ought to live in the end times. And what Peter shows us and helps us to consider are answers to questions like, what would you do if you knew the world was coming to an end? How would you live? What would you feel? How would you spend and devote your time? If you're not really sure about that, then there's a couple of things to know. First, the Bible says the times that we live in today are actually the end times. Jesus may come back at any point, we don't know when, but we live in this time in which we are in the last stages of humanity. But Peter shows us in our passage a very practical and concrete answer to that question. If the world was coming to an end, what would you prize? How would you devote your time? What would it look like? Peter gives us very four practical ways to live out your life. We're not going to cover all four, but let me just list them really quickly. He says, be self-controlled, keep loving one another, be hospitable, and serve one another. 
And that's what he gives us. That's the recipe of the Apostle Peter of he telling you, this is how you ought to live in the end times. He says, be self-controlled, which literally means stay cool. Have sane thoughts. Think straight. Don't lose it. And then he says, above all, love one another earnestly. And above all there means the most basic, most fundamental thing you got to do is to love one another. And he says, do it earnestly, which literally means chase after this, run after it, be eager. Above all, most basically, be eager and chase after loving one another. And then, ironically, he says, show hospitality. In the end times, be a good host. And it's interesting in that commandment, he adds, be hospitable without grumbling, which means that some things don't change because it is hard to be hospitable. And sometimes you get a guest that comes over that's not too thankful or too easy to get along with. And we grumble a lot in our hospitality. And then he ends it in verses 10 to 11, and he says, serve one another with the gifts that God has given you. That's what he says. How do you live in the end times? Be self-controlled, love one another, be hospitable, and then serve each other. But our message, our time here this morning is going to focus on that last one in verses 10 to 11. There's things that I think we can learn about in terms of how we can serve one another in what we call the end times. And so there are three things we can consider really quickly. This will be almost like a seminar, something practical for you to understand gifts. How do you find your gift? How do you use your gift? What does your gift do? And so we're going to look at three perspectives on serving one another. First, we're going to recognize once again that each one of you has a gift. Every one of you, young and old, has a gift given to you by Jesus. And then secondly, we're going to look at a way to think about gifts in the big picture, that there are a variety of different gifts. There's a plethora, a menu of different kind of gifts that helps you to think through the church and how your gifts can be used. And then last but not least, we're going to consider how do you discover your gift? What do you know that you're, how do you know your spiritual gift? What, is, what are you gifted with? Because even in this short series, there's been a handful of people that come up and say, thanks for the message, Pastor Will. I don't know what my gift is. I may not be able to answer that, but I'm going to give you a couple of thoughts on that last point to help you think through discovering your gifts. So each one of you has a gift. There's a variety of different gifts to think about. How do you discover your gift? So let's get right into it. Each has a gift. That's what Peter says in verse 10, doesn't he? It's black and white. It's plain. In verse 10, it says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Each is singular. It's a person. It's individuality. Each one of you has a gift. As each has received a gift, that means every one of you in this room, whether you're a mature, whether you're a new believer, whether you're young or old, because God is so gracious, he has given you a gift to use for the church. Dan Doriani, this uh, pastor, scholar, he wrote a, a commentary on 1 Peter. And on this passage, he says, the theological conviction, the theme that, that drives the concept of serving in gifts in all the New Testament is this. We do not all have the same function. That's the theological conviction that drives gifts and service. We don't all have the same function. Peter says in his own way in verse 11, there's God's varied grace, there's variation, there's diversity, there's uniqueness to each and every one of you, so that your uniqueness adds to the beauty of the church. There's diversity within unity. So later on, we'll look into this, but he says, each one of you has a gift, God's varied grace. 
We all don't have the same function. Some serve and some teach, some give, some lead, you know, some create, some organize. And Christianity on this point actually has a point in contact with Aristotle because he once said that the city-state is made of different kinds of people in different ages of people, and the city finds its life within diversity. In other words, this diversity and uniqueness of individuality brings life to the city-state. And on that point, that's what Peter is saying, too, about the church. That's why Paul used the idea about the body and says there's different parts of the body that bring life to the church. There are different unique contributions of you and I that builds up the life of the church. We all don't sing the same note. We're strung together to sing one harmony. So this is sort of a theological point. This is how you ought to understand the world of New Life Press and your individual contribution. Because it's a reflection of how God designed the world, that God is diverse in the Trinity, and he gives a lot of abundant blessings, a unique giftedness to each one of you, that when you use this gift, it builds up the church. Because in Genesis, when God created the world, he expected us to use our gifts, our strengths, our capacities to cultivate and to create even in the beginning of humanity and culture, in the world we live in. And we recognize that each and every one of you, you gravitate towards some part of culture in the world that excites you, that gives you life. And every one of you have different tastes and personalities. So some of you gravitate towards arts and to architecture or to music. Some of you gravitate towards technology, others to business, others to world affairs. But we all have a natural inclination. You're uniquely you. You have a natural gravitational pull that you really celebrate some aspect of God's creation. And that uniqueness is something that God celebrates in his diversity. We all have different tastes. Some of you dread the desert. Some of you probably love the austerity and the beauty of the desert. Some of you love the constant sunny days in California. Others of you long for the beauty of snow and the whiteness of the land the mist and the rain of a valley. Each of us has tastes. We have individual insights that we can bring to the community to bring about the flourishing of humanity. Each of you reflects a particular character of God in his creation in such a distinct way that every one of you makes a personal contribution to the beauty and the health of the church, a personal contribution to God's design in the world that we live in. Because as an individual, this means you have a unique experience, a unique name, a unique insight, a unique capacity, an interest that allows you to make a one-of-a-kind, unique contribution to God's work in this kingdom. Because you take any service in the church and you're thinking, oh, I'm not gifted in that, or anybody can do that. Well, anybody may be able to do it, but not anyone could do it like you could. You could join food ministry in the way that you think about food and feeding the people and helping education, but your unique perspective on that adds something wonderful and beautiful to the church. Anyone potentially could usher people into the seats, which, by the way, anyone can't do that. It's actually a very specific gift set. But anyone could usher people into the church, but the way that you make contact with newcomers and visitors, the way you greet them with your smile and your warmth and your personality and your look, is all a unique contribution that brings out the flourishing of humanity in the church. Every individual has that because, as verse 10 says, as each has received a gift. So every one of you has that. You're uniquely created in the, 
image of God, even though we're all united by the one commonality of Jesus Christ. He says, you're unique, you're special, you have a unique contribution, a life story, and oftentimes all the differences that make us frustrated with one another is exactly how God designed the church to make it beautiful. Now think about that. A lot of the concerns and complaints I get now is things such as, oh, that person's too passive, or that person's too strong, or that person's too logical and organized in type A. No, it's just, it feels crippling. It feels like a straitjacket. That person is too free-flowing artistic. It never replies to the emails. Never is on top of the ball. We always get frustrated. Do you know why? Because you're expecting the other person to be like you, but actually God designed it for the other person to complement and to supplement you. You're not artistic, so he brings the artist in. You're not organized, so you bring the administrator in. You're not really a leader, but that's why you serve well behind the scenes. You serve well behind the scenes because there's someone who likes to be up front. You have someone who's very empathetic, but then you also have someone who has the ability to speak cold truth. Everyone has different personalities, and in the sin of the church, that brings out heartache and frustration, complaints and criticism. But in the gospel of Jesus, we're supposed to be brought together because we complement, we supplement, we encourage. It builds out the diversity of the church because the diversity of the church reflects the diversity of God. One God, three persons, and the church reflects that. So each one of you has a gift that is needed with your own life story, your own perspective, your own contribution that God will use so that you can be a good steward of the varied grace that God has given you. So let's move on to the second point. Let's think about gifts then. If each one of you has a gift, let's try to clarify that a little bit, shall we? You know, can we maybe we could dialogue about this. How do, you, how do you understand gifts? You know, it's not as easy as you think. There are different kinds of gifts. Verses 10 to 11 is Peter's broad gifts. He distinguishes different gifts. Paul has three lists of gifts. He has one in Romans 12. We looked at that. Ephesians 4 last week. 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. So those are four lists, but when you read these lists, they are different in size and content, even purpose. None are meant to be exhaustive, but together they mention about 20 gifts. But even the 20 is just sort of a sampling. So there's no concrete list of gifts, but there is a category and an organization of different types of gifts. Sometimes gifts are listed, the terms are listed as gifts, but other times that same term is listed as a fruit or a consequence of a gift. It's very free-flowing. So, for example, encouragement is a gift in Romans 12, but encouragement is a consequence and a fruit of prophecy in 1 Corinthians 14. Knowledge is a gift because you're good at theology, you're knowledgeable, you have content. It's a gift in 1 Corinthians 12, but it's a result of teaching and prophecy in 1 Corinthians 14. So it's very elastic. Hospitality is interesting because it's listed near the gifts in our passage, it's an expression of love. It builds up the church, and it allows missionaries to do their work in other passages. But hospitality is never listed as a gift strictly. But what do we always say? Community group leaders, people, who has a gift of hospitality? Well, it doesn't list it as a gift, but I think it still is. What are the different types of gifts? How do we think about this? I'm trying to clarify this, so maybe we could dialogue a little bit about it. Let's begin with Peter, should we? In verse 11. He really says there in verse 11, his most basic categories of gifts, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So essentially, the biggest category of gifts, when you think about 
the diversity of gifts is that there are word gifts and there are deed gifts. There are speaking gifts and there are serving gifts. So speaking gifts could be something like, in the biblical list, discernment, wisdom, teaching, preaching, evangelizing, knowledge, shepherding, encouragement. Serving gifts are things such as administration, giving, hospitality, mercy, service is actually listed as a gift, and creativity. So there's doing gifts and there's speaking gifts. That's one way to think about it. The other big category to think about when you look at the gifts is that are they public or are they private? Public can be administration because you're organizing a church retreat. Public can be leadership because you're leading publicly or you're teaching. Private gifts can be things such as giving, giving resources, giving financially, hospitality in the privacy of your home, mercy and shepherding. And sometimes these gifts just have an overlap. They're both public and private. Evangelism could be one-on-one, but also could be at a conference of 5,000. You can encourage people through a sermon, but you can encourage people at a hospital visitation. You could serve people widely in doing a committee, but you could also serve people by helping change a tire or bringing food organically. Wisdom, which is advice to navigate life that could come from the pulpit or it could come from your kitchen counter. They're both public and private. So you have to ask yourself as you kind of look at that diversity of gifts, are there word gifts? Are there deed gifts? Are they public? Are they private? And this is basically the point about the category of gifts. We can't be too strict on the number of gifts or the names of gifts, but that God is abundant and diverse in his grace and within that diversity of gifts, you have to find out what is yours and how do you use them. Your gift is a grace to others. That's what Peter's point is in verse 10. You're good stewards of God's varied grace. And that's just Peter's way of saying, not only did Jesus give us grace, but we're going to be the means or the channel of grace to each other. So when you don't serve, it's almost like turning off the faucet of God's grace so that someone is left without drinking from the well of Jesus Christ. Sure, public worship and word and sacrament from Sunday is the waterfall of God's grace, but still there's a drinking fountain of serving one another as stewards of God's grace, and you have to discover what those gifts are. You're a grace to each other. All gifts are important. All are needed in the life of the church. And there's a category and a plethora of different kinds of gifts that you can discover and that you can think about. And this leads us to our third and last point. How do you discover your gifts? How do you think about your gifts? How do you know what your gift is? If I asked you, how do you know what your gift is? Well, let's kind of talk about this a little bit. I think the way you can think about it is that you have to be honest and humble and process this yourself. The first question you just simply ask yourself is this, am I a speaker or am I a doer? By the way, you could have both. It doesn't mean that you're one or the other. And by the way, the most important thing that the passage doesn't talk about is that character matters the most. But he's just talking about, in a very specified way, Peter's talking about your actual gifts. So we're not talking about character, which is probably the most important thing. You could be the most gifted, but you have no character, then it essentially renders your gift useless. But he's talking about gifts. The first way you want to think about this is that are you a speaker or are you a doer? The second thing is to think about do I like public ministry or do I like private? Does the idea of praying in Sunday service, public prayer, giving a testimony in New Year's Eve service, when we approach you, 
Does it frighten you or does it excite you to do something public? Ask yourself these questions because it's about gift set. What do you enjoy doing? What do people ask you to do? What do people want you to do? Where do you feel God's pleasure? Now, how do you understand your gift? Now, so for a quick testimony, when I was a young adult living in New York, I was working in finance, but I was serving as a layperson. I didn't know what my gifts were. I think I mentioned this before in college. I thought it was, I was hoping it would be music, but that God shut that down really quick. So for a couple of years, I was driving, driving the church van to pick up the college students at Rutgers University, and you know, if you just, it was just a 45-minute drive from my apartment to church, and then a one-hour drive to pick up three campuses at Rutgers University, and I did that for two years, and it was fine actually. I didn't, I felt fine with it. I thought it was helpful. The first year, we didn't pick up any students because the smaller church were trying to grow. The second time, there was more students that came. It felt good that I could bring them to church. It didn't feel like it was a chore. It didn't feel like I was grumbling. And it felt like something that I was okay at. And the pastors and the leaders thought, okay, Will seems somewhat responsible. He could do this. I think maybe I discovered a gift in that, in terms of serving. Later on, my pastor said, hey, Will, why don't you try leading a small group and doing Bible study, even as an uneducated layperson? And I started learning about theology and started serving the church through Bible studies in my small group and being able to look at different passages of the Bible and fumbling through it all. It was a mess. I probably said so many heretical things. But in the midst of this, there was some encouragement. There was some feedback. There was, some, there was still consistent attendance. So I began to discover, even though it's in seed form, maybe I have a potential to teach the Bible a little bit, and there's some sort of gift of teaching. That's how it often looks like. You have to see, what do you enjoy doing? I loved actually reading theology. Read through Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, started reading this theologian, Meredith Klein, started reading these other theologians that exposed me to Reformed theology. And that's what I had a lot of conversations at. No one was ever asking me to lead praise. They would ask me, what did you think about this verse? Or how do you think we could actually fix the van and to be able to pick up students a little bit more efficiently? Those were the questions that I was getting. Those were the things that made me more excited. That's how you begin to discover your gifts. Are you a speaker or are you a doer? Are you public or are you private? What excites you? What makes you thrive? Or as we keep saying in Chariots of Fire, when you run, what makes you feel God's pleasure? There's this professor from Claremont, Professor Mihai, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, Mihai Checks Mihai, but he refers to something in a book that he wrote that I came across about this concept of flow. That's his term. And it's not a Christian book, but he's talking about when you find your place in this world, in the function in society, it should feel like flow. It's natural. And this is what he says and how he describes it. Flow is a complete immersion in the activity for its own sake. The ego falls away because it's not by, about you. Time flies. Every action, every movement, every thought follows inevitably from the previous one. Your whole being is involved, and you're using your skills to the utmost. You're flowing. So when you think about your gifts and you're discovering this, when you're committed to a task, it's a natural fit. It's like riding with your dominant hand. It's your natural swing. It's what Eric Liddell says, I feel God's pleasure. One professor in the same article says, I teach for free. Because that's flow. He loves teaching, but they pay me to grade papers because that's what he absolutely hated. 
That's how you can discover what are you good at, what makes you flow in this life. And that's part of the challenge of leadership because we're trying to figure out what is your flow, each and every one of you. And it's difficult if we can have an honest conversation. Some of you think you flow in this way. You want to be public and you want to be a leader, but actually that's not really your gift. And some of you want to be a teacher, but you're actually not that articulate. You're not really a speaker. You're more of a doer. And some of you want to be a leader, but it's not really your flow, and it's something that kind of trickles. So we're thinking you have to be better at being a support role or a number two or behind the scenes. Some of you really are good with people, but because it hasn't been cultivated, you're not flowing because I see you in leading a community group or discipleship group or doing prayer because you have insightful prayers and conversations and insight. And part of discovering your gift is to ask these questions and to be humble enough to follow how God uniquely gifted you and created you so that you can flow in the life and the ability and the diversity and unity of the church. Because in the same way, discovering your gifts and using it to serve one another is discovering what makes you flow in your life. Now, one way to think about it in this way, I said this in the first message, one way to figure out God's calling is to say, what is my gift? What is the need in the church? Do I have the capacity to meet this? Frederick Buechner has said it this way. The place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's needs meet. The world's needs, the church's needs. Oftentimes, the way service comes out is that you combine two different aspects. You think, what brings me deep gladness? And I serve to meet my need. I want to be recognized. I want to be public. I want to be able to sing music, even though you can't carry a tune. I want to teach publicly, but you're not coherent, and your theology's all messed up. You have all these different aspirations, and you have a passion that makes you glad, but you're meeting it not in the world's needs, but yourself. And that's why church is so difficult, because no one likes to be told that they're not that great at something, right? Now, I'll bring this story up again. That was my experience in college when I was trying to be a praise leader. I mentioned that a couple of weeks ago. I was singing, and then a student came up. He was in the orchestra and said, Pastor Will, there's no tempo in how you're playing. There's no rhythm in your guitar. That's not music. You know, and in seminary, my first year in seminary, I was like, oh, man, this is it's, it's humbling. You know, but in my pride, I'm like, sit down. You don't know what you're talking about. Think about your theology. And I'll lead praise again. And then there's this one song by Matt Redman that I loved, and I played for two months straight every Sunday until this, another student came up and said, Will, Pastor Will, did you know that that song, I don't know if people told you, it's syncopated. But you're trying to sing the song on the same beat as your strum. And I was like, huh, it's syncopated. Didn't even know what that meant. It just means it's a little bit offbeat. I'm like, sit down and just think about your theology. <laughs> and then it came up again, the third student says, Will, Pastor Will, on that one line, you're a little bit flat. You're a little bit under the note. You have to sing over the note. I don't know what that means, but that's why I share with some praise. Sing over the note, and then you'll hit the note. You're singing other, under the note. I was like, huh, I'm flat. Sit down and think about your theology. <laughs> but that, took, that was my pride. That's why it's hard. I wasn't flowing. Now, I had to teach the Bible study. I'd go pick up the kids. I used to hang out a lot at the campus at Rutgers University. That's, I guess that's what, that's what I was a little bit better at. But that's humility. That's why you have to find out your design. The place that God calls you is where you have deep gladness, but that deep gladness meets the world's need. Try discovering your gift. 
So ask those questions, and this is probably the best way to do it. If you don't know what your gift is, take a step of faith, find what's interesting to you, and then serve. Go ahead and serve. And if you find out it's not your gift, that's a celebration because you discovered something about yourself that you're not gifted to serve in that area. Take a shot and serve. You notice in Peter's passage, he doesn't say, don't serve. He says, serve one another. It's unanimous, it's holistic, it's universal. He doesn't say, some of you serve, some of you don't serve. He's not like that. He says, in the end times, the end times, the world's coming to an end, serve one another. So just serve anywhere. Take a shot. Just be open to the fact that we may move you and place you into the stream in which you could flow, and then you're going to discover your gift. You'll feel God's pleasure. This is what you have to consider as you discover your gift. A lot of times your gift is something that all Christians have to do. You know, for example, there's a gift of service, but every one of you is called to serve. It's just that person is really good at serving. The Bible and the Psalms will say, sing to the song, sing to God a new song. Everyone's called to sing, but the person who has a gift has a capacity. It's much bigger. It's an exaggerated, a greater gift of God's grace in singing. Maybe she'll lead praise. Every one of you is called to be an administrator. Every one of you is called to be welcoming. Every one of you is called to give, both financially and your time, but some people really have a gift of generosity because they love giving things away and they don't need public recognition. Everyone is called to evangelize, but some people are really gifted at evangelism. So part of this discovering your gifts is to recognize that it may be something that all Christians are called to do, but you're just really good at it. God has given you a certain measure of gift that you are really blessed in that way. And we're here to help you discover what that gift is so that in the unity of the church, we bring out the flourishing of humanity through the diversity of your unique personalities and your contributions and the gift that Jesus has given to you. It's interesting in the passage here, there is a pattern which Peter gives us in terms of living in the end times. He works from the inside out. How do you live in the end times? Well, he says, start with how you handle yourself in verse 7. Think soberly. Then he goes and expands out, how do you treat one another in your attitude and your heart affections? Then he steps out even further, and he says that love should express itself practically in hospitality and serving. That's how he thinks about it, from the inside out. Think soberly about yourself, be humble, have accurate view, love one another broadly, how do you love one another? Show hospitality and then serve. That means if you don't show hospitality, you're not serving. Very practically, you're not really loving the church. All of this is what Peter tells us very simply. It's not very exciting in light of the coming of Jesus, the certainty of his return, the light of the end times that we live in. You know, sometimes they say, isn't there like people who live in the end times? Or they're crazy. They're crazy because they're thinking that the world's coming to an end. Peter kind of flips that upside down and says, actually, if you don't live like it's the end times, you're crazy. We are in the end times. But you don't run around making false prophecies. You basically think about yourself, love your people through hospitality, through service of one another. And that's how we prepare for the coming of Jesus Christ. It's an other-centered way of living, friends. You live for one another. That phrase there is scattered and peppered throughout the passage. Verse 8, one another, love another. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another. Verse 10, serve one another. Now, if we end the message here, 
essentially, almost, if we ended the message, essentially, I've given you a moralistic message because just serve and discover your gifts is all these commandments. But that's sort of the thrust of the passage. There's a lot of commandments. But if I just left it there, you don't have a Christian message because the Christian message gives you Jesus that empowers you to serve. Isn't that Jesus' mission as he summarized in the Gospel of Mark? The Son of Man came to serve and not be served. That heart, that joy, everything about what you just said terminates and centers on Jesus. Who gives you the varied grace for your gift? Jesus Christ, as we looked at last week, who models for us what it looks like to serve in an other-centered way. Jesus Christ, who is the Son of Man who did this. How do you deal with the fact that maybe I'm self-centric and self-concentrated in the way that I think about my resources and gifts that could always come up with an excuse not to serve because you think you're not that gifted, even though Tim Keller once said you could always go to the hospital, change a bedpan of a patient. You don't need a lot of gift to do that, but it's tremendous, remarkable, supernatural love to serve. Anyone can serve in this church. How do you have that heart, that love? That takes redemption and transformation. That takes a humble confession. I'm a sinner. I keep my gifts to myself. I don't want to be other-centered. I want to be self-centered. And the only way that you change and go out of that is because Jesus Christ was the Son of Man who came to serve and not be served. And he came into this world. And he came into humanity who was broken and selfish. And he redeemed you and me so that we could be pushed out because we were called to Christ and now we're called to serve. And we use our gifts and our individual contributions to make the kingdom a little bit better, to be a vessel of grace to someone else because Jesus was that grace for us. That's why Peter terminates this section in verse 11. He says, you're doing all this not for yourself in order that, which by the way is a purpose clause in verse 11, the goal of all of this, the purpose of all of this, verse 11, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, which is the sum and center of our lives, isn't it? Very simple. It's a very easy passage, very logical Overly simplistic, poetic in its simplicity. You do all of this by the power of the gospel, as a result of the gospel, as Jesus is the center of your life, with the goal in order that God may be glorified in everything through Jesus Christ. And every time I say to people, glorify God, it sounds kind of abstract. It's not. I'm giving you black and white, biblical understanding, how do you glorify God in your life? Yeah, it's raising your hands and singing. It's worshiping him. Very practically, how do you glorify God? Think with sober thoughts, love everyone through hospitality and serving one another. That's when God is most glorified. According to the apostle Peter, that's how you live in the end times. That's what you do when we're on the 11th hour. This is how the church of Jesus Christ ought to live and be in light of the fact that we are on the cusp of this stage of humanity in this world about to end. And if you do none of this, which all of us struggle with, you'll never glorify God. You won't live properly in the end times. And that's when life becomes a little bit awry. So look to Jesus Christ. Receive him. Contemplate him. Love him. Learn about him. Worship him. Channel his grace out to others by using your gift to serve one another. Then and only then, new life will reach its vision, the discipling people in Orange County and beyond. Let's turn to the Lord and pray. Father, we thank you so much for the grace that we have received in Jesus to save us, but also the grace that you have given us so that we could serve others. Lord, help us, Lord, to really discern 
I feel empowered and encouraged and humbled that each of us have been gifted and that there is an abundance and diverse array of gifts in the Bible because you are abundant and you're diverse, God. And help us to learn and discover our gifts, to be sober and to be rational and humble and to be biblical so that we could discover our gifts and use it in some small way to serve one another with all the hearts and love because Jesus came in this world to serve us. Thank you, God. We pray all this in Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, here at New Life, we believe that the primary way that we could bless you through Jesus